0: Welcome back to Forensic Minds, aimed at those studying to be forensic psychologists and early career forensic psychologists, or those with an interest in the area of forensic psychology and you're curious as to what it actually is forensic psychologists do. My name is Madison Riachi, I'm a current doctoral candidate at Swinburne University and the National Student Representative for the Australian Psychological Society College of Forensic Psychologists. Before we begin, we would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we are all listening today. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Now, our host for this episode is Claire Bryce. Claire is a dear colleague of mine and so a little bit about her. She is currently in her final year of the Doctor of Psychology at Swinburne University and the Centre of Forensic Behavioural Science, where her thesis aims to validate an existing risk assessment tool used in cases of intimate partner violence. Claire completed her undergraduate and honours degree at La Trobe University and has worked in community corrections, forensic disability, homelessness and alcohol and other drug settings. Her course placements have included those with Forensic Care, Karen Isch and GEO at Ravenhall Correctional Centre. Claire is currently the Victorian Student Representative for the Australian Psychological Society College of Forensic Psychologists. And our guest, Dr David Kerno. David has been a forensic psychologist for over 20 years. He was appointed a full-time member of the Adult Parole Board of Victoria in 2014, reappointed in 2019, and late in 2020, he was appointed the Post-Sentence Authority. Prior to this, Dr Kerno held a variety of clinical leadership positions in the Victorian and South Australian Correctional Systems. Within these roles, Dr. Kerno co-wrote the Violence Intervention Program utilised in Victoria, completed a number of key policy analyses which informed departmental planning and trained clinicians, Centrelink staff and correctional staff over a wide range of topics. In private practice, Dr. Kerno has provided psychological treatment to a broad range of clients and groups in addition to providing reports to the court on criminal, civil and family law matters. He has held a variety of positions on regional, state and national executives of the Australian Psychological Society. Dr. Kernow currently sits on the Standards Australia Committee, reviewing the fraud and corruption control standards. Over his career, he has delivered numerous presentations at academic conferences, university courses, professional bodies and large financial institutions. On topics as diverse as parole decisions, the impact of electronic monitoring, managing aggression in the workplace, white collar crime and reducing the risk of fraud, the role of victims in correctional treatment, the impact of methamphetamines on offending, malingering of chronic lower back pain, risk factors for armed robbers and the development of violence programs. And very excitingly, his first book titled The Psychology of Embezzlement, The Art of Control and Intervention is being published by Palgrave Macmillan later this year. Now, you're in for a really great episode with Dr. Kerno, who has, as you can hear, extensive experience as a forensic psychologist. He'll be sharing details about his progression over his career and telling us a bit about the roles that he has held in his time. So I'll leave you with Claire and Dr. Kerno. Thanks so much for joining us, David.
1: Well, thanks very much, Claire. Um, so... Um, I guess start off with we'll just kind of get cracking with what drew you towards the field of forensic psychology and how did you get into it? Yeah, uh,
2: well, <laughs> there's going to be lots of terms like back in my day, but uh, <laughs> uh, so there was no no psychology in year 12, um, unlike now obviously, so I didn't really know what I was getting into. Uh, my mum was a speech therapist, and my dad was a school teacher and my mum uh mentioned psychology, I was sort of getting around to, you know, when you needed to make your selections in year 12, I was uh, not particularly interested in much, it might be fair to say, I was sort of tossing up whether thinking about police force or or law or a range of different things, but um, uh, my mum said, well, you know, you're interested in people and you're you're reasonably good at science, so uh, why don't you think about psychology? And so she, you know, asked her, colleagues and um, a lot of people suggested La Trobe Uni was probably a good one to go to at the time uh, so I decided to go to La Trobe Uni but the main reason I was keen to go to La Trobe Uni um, was you could do drama as part of the, um, the course and also do sociology so that seemed like a pretty good deal uh, to me so so I went to La Trobe Uni um, and it would be fair to say in La Trobe Uni at the time and I don't know now but it was notorious for rats and stats and watching rats <laughs> run around mazes and timing them and um uh so it would be fair to say that my three years at La Trobe were not uh, a whole lot of fun but uh credit where credit's due I learned very very well how to conduct experiments and write up papers and I look back now uh and think it, that was exactly what you need at that particular mm. time and since then I've lectured on other courses and um and whilst uh, a difficult pill to swallow, it was uh, it was for someone like me anyway, very very helpful. Um, yep. Then after that, so I swore I'd never touch psychology ever again. Done uh, <laughs> so all right for it. something that you fell into. Yes, <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I went and worked in advertising for a couple of years, and I travelled to the US. And it was while I was in the United States, actually, that I was looking around, and I'm chronic and pain management was just sort of taking off then from a psychological point of view and probably which suggests my naivety as much as anything else. Um, uh, I really wasn't aware that you could actually do that sort of work in terms of pain management. And so mm. uh, it, using psychological methods. So I sort of came back to Australia with a, you know, a, a plan that I was going to um, uh, do my fourth year and, um, and perhaps work in uh, pain management, not really, thinking about you know, whether I'd get a master's or anything like that. So I always wanted to move to Perth, my mum's from Perth. And so I went to Perth and, um, and I was successful in getting into Edith Cowan University and doing the fourth year program there. Um, and I did my fourth year uh, research project on chronic pain management and comparing psychological and physical um, techniques, which was great. And that got me sufficient marks to get into a master's program. And at the time at Edith Cowan, uh, Professor Don Thompson was the um, uh, head of school. And and it'd be fair to say it was the only forensic psychology course in the country. So they had clinical psychology, uh, geropsychology, and forensic psychology. And I'd be, uh, there's no doubt that forensic psychology being the only course in the country was the exciting course the the course that you know uh, held a great deal of interest, and people would come from all over Australia, and indeed that's why you know um, I met people like Bruce Watt and um, other people in Victoria, such as uh, Simone Shaw, trained with me there, Astrid Bergman. Um So a lot of people were trained there. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was an absolute um, hub at the time for that sort of thing, and I might also say a lot of the the lecturers, like Kevin Howells and. Um, uh, a number of other lecturers went on to establish forensic psychology programs um, uh, throughout Australia a little bit later. So, so it was a great time to be there. And I'm embarrassed to say though that um, when they when we got into the you know got into the course and was trying to explain it to my wife and why I thought it might be interesting, um, that we all got sat down and got asked why you know what interests you about forensic psychology and. I had this ridiculous line, and Michael Davis won't be happy with this, but a uh, ridiculous line about, I thought profiling was really interesting <laughs> I been out for a couple of years. But the person next to me had a really great line that uh, I will happily steal now, which was um, that forensic psychology, I'm interested in the extremes of behaviour. And to this day, that is undoubtedly the um, uh, most accurate thing I could say about my interests in forensic psychology too. I've probably broaden it a bit more now though, and perhaps say forensic psychology, more than a lot of other forms of psychology, I think um, attempts to fit within quite a complex context. And I think that's, mm. that's a very interesting space to be in. So I've probably broadened my view a little bit as I've sort of moved away a little bit from the, the straight clinical side, but really understanding how psychology can put in, be utilized in a relatively specific context. Um, so I completed my master's uh, and I actually completed it not on a, you know, on, um, in chronic back pain and malingering and doing an assessment on that. So more of a civil rather than a criminal uh, sort of uh, work, uh, project. And while I was working there, and this sort of feeds into it a bit too, while I was doing my fourth year, I was working at a youth centre in a very low socioeconomic part of Perth. And that had a very high Aboriginal population. I really... Really was enjoying a, a lot working with this group, um, and you know, and learned a great deal about working with uh, really with people who had enormous disadvantage, uh, and that really, and the amount of, unfortunately, these young men and women who who had relatives in prison at the time, and and to be really blunt, you know, like they might be destined to go there too, that was a, a really important factor for me as well. I learned a lot there.
1: Yeah, um, so even, I guess, from the beginning, had quite a variety of experiences kind of just yeah. coming into it.
2: Um, no, look, I worked in security for a while as well, and that probably was a bit part of it as well. And, yeah, we wow. are. And I had, uh, I was, whilst doing my master's, I worked at the Centre for Police Research as well, which was, so I was really getting, again, this is the advantage of being at a, a real uh, singular moment in a, you in a, um, know, uh, in a discipline's history, I guess, that uh there are lots and lots of opportunities to be able to work with really interesting people. And so I got a, a really broad overview, like I, I got to teach um some interviewing skills on the uh detective training course, for example, for WA police. So things like that that, oh, fantastic. that uh, yeah, I look back now and think just, I was blessed with some extraordinary opportunities. I would say now though, the Masters program was probably more of a psychology law program.
1: Mm.
2: Um especially given uh, Professor uh, Don Thompson's background, then the sort of forensic clinical program that Swinburne runs. So there probably probably is a little bit different. So uh, we had very, very good placements and we had very experienced forensic psychs on staff. So you learn really critical lessons. And one I was forever thankful for, for example, the concept of group work was actually discussed, which mm. nowadays is standard and normal, but back then no one ever knew Yeah, really it was it new kind
1: of part, so territory.
2: Very much, yeah, yeah, so that was great. And then I have been working for sorry, worked for a range of different agencies and I'll talk about that in a sec, but uh, uh, I'd really become interested in white collar crime because I was treating violent offenders all the time, but occasionally I was asked to treat a, or assess a white collar offender and I just found them absolutely fascinating. Um, and so for that reason, uh, I decided to do my PhD uh, and I was very fortunate that um, Professor Ogloff was um, also similarly interested in doing it in... in uh, white collar crime uh really under under assessed or under researched area so it was um uh it's always great uh, whenever i speak at a conference or something finding out where people are going to actually put you because there's never a <laughs> um, good place to put the guy talking doesn't about fit
1: anywhere
2: <laughs> doesn't fit well no no so that's and so i guess i really enjoyed research all the way along um, it's always sort of fascinated me um and uh, yeah, always really keen to be part of that. So yeah,
1: yeah, great, thank you. Um, I guess we kind of sort of touched on getting into this question anyway, but um, tell us about how you got to where you are now. Um. Well, it's a,
2: it's not particularly uh, complex. I guess I've, I've done most of my work in prison, so my first job as a psychologist was in Port Augusta prison and um, like I said it was a strange time where you, you could probably you could pick and choose where you wanted to go in some ways. Um, uh, Victoria probably being the only one that's not so much the case because uh, there weren't many psychologists in prison after um, after uh, changing government and, uh, and in a huge number of positions being lost in the public service. but. Uh, but my first job at Port Augusta Prison, I chose Port Augusta um, in many ways because the prison there was minimum, medium, maximum female, Uh, they had a female unit, they had a protection unit, bush gang uh, and it was about 70 percent Aboriginal people and again and um, some of the makeup because of where Port Augusta is, there were sometimes traditional men and women Mm present and also it had a, a pretty significant remand function as well so in terms of Getting an enormous amount of prison experience in a pretty short time, Port Augusta was very, very hard to beat. And, and um, anybody who's been supervised me knows that I still will refer, half my uh, anecdotal evidence comes from my time at Port Augusta prison because um, it was a seminal moment time for me. And, uh, and I, you know, I still sort of joke a bit about it that I. Uh, I got my, um, uh, you know, my basic training in, uh, in Perth, uh, but I really got my life experience. I got my, my experience in Port Augusta, so I learned a, a great deal there oh, uh, and I had some great supervision too uh, by a psychologist uh, who, who'd been, worked in prisons for a long time at the Labor prison, uh, Warwick Lloyd, and I had a very prison-wise social worker as my manager, so I was, I was just incredibly fortunate. Uh, in terms of getting a really strong base of um, how to work as a psychologist in a prison so that was really useful. Um, my next job was at Karanesh uh, and I was there for a year uh, and that was uh, a really great experience uh, of working as a, in a therapeutic community at a Prison and that was primarily um, AOD so uh, and the process at the time was probably less directive group work which was the group work I'd had experience with at in Port Augusta was very, it was relatively directive and and I'd written a violence program in Port Augusta and it was quite directive as well. So it was good to get a a different point of view about how you might operate within a prison system. So that was useful. I probably broadened my views a great deal and and I took the view after that. You really needed to know and understand the services that are available for people. It's not just about the psychology, it's about the services. So they could have done extremely well in your program, but if they haven't got a place to rest their head at night, then then the chances of them coming back to jail are pretty high. uh,
1: Which again, my
2: naivety spilleth over in that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But I heard you say that you were doing your PhD lit review at the same time as you were doing that. Um, I guess for our sort of early career people that are probably interested in balancing that, do you have any tips? To kind
2: of help them out? Oh, well, Centrelink was really good with things like study leave. So yeah. that was very helpful. Um, that was the, it was around that time too, that uh, if you do your PhD whilst you're working often, places have libraries of um, mm-hmm. their own, in, so I could access the federal government library. And so basically PDFs would be sent to me. So there was none of the old school PhD of having to go to the library on weekends and hunt down, you know. Made yeah, things
1: um,
2: a bit easier for you. Totally, yeah, yeah. So that was not not quite so difficult, actually. Uh, yes, then I began working in Corrections Victoria uh, and pretty much did so up until the parole board. So I worked in minimum security, medium security uh, as senior clinician and a program manager. And then I became the regional manager for <clears throat> two regions, which covered three prisons and and basically the a quarter of Victoria, say, in terms of the um, the, uh, community corrections area. So, again, um, that was a a, a very fond memories of that time and and working in prisons. Uh, So, basically, that was 10 years, give or take, in in prisons for Corrections Victoria.
1: Yeah, I actually um, was a corrections officer around about the time you started the parole board. And so that, for me, at the time was, like, career goals. So, it's very exciting to now be interviewing you for kind of get that background information.
2: Look, it was a a strange, yeah, and I I was doing private practice for a lot of that that time, obviously. And that's when I did some consultancy work on white-collar crime, which I'll talk a bit about later, and that was with large financial institutions, which is a really, an interesting other side of forensic psychology that probably is um, uh, less well understood,
1: I would suggest, and how
2: others view forensic psychology so uh, so in terms of the adult fraud board, that was a, a, an interesting moment where I was working, uh, yeah, as I said, regional manager. Uh, and for, in the murder of Jill Mar, uh, which which really caused, as you're no doubt aware, massive change in Victoria and even nowadays, years later, um, you know, the names Jill Maher and Adrian Bailey are, are still you know, incredibly well known. Um, yeah. so that was a real turning point for the Adult Parole Board uh, where it had a, a major review um, led by Justice Callinan um, and that Justice Callinan handed down his um, findings in 2013 and the Victorian government at the time um, really made massive changes to both community corrections and um, Adult Parole Board. And, and whilst it wasn't one of the outcomes from the Callinan review, it was viewed that um, that probably needed to be a forensic psychologist or um, uh, greater psychological input at the adult parole board. Yeah. And so I was asked to apply for the role and was fortunate enough to get it. Uh, and that was, that was uh, that I was there for six and a half years. Um, and over that time, you saw massive changes just in terms of, so it would be fair to say less people were getting parole, but those who did get parole, far, few, uh, far fewer were getting canceled and also too and perhaps even more importantly um the rates of people committing sexual or violent offenses whilst on parole dropped to, um, to a very very low level nothing like it was um uh in the years before the calendar review and and it certainly wasn't just the death of jill ma or the murder of jill, jill ma that caused that uh change but that was the sort of straw that broke the camel's back i think it'd be fair to say after there've yeah. been numerous reviews of parolees committing murder and other terrible offences whilst on parole so um yeah that was really enjoyable
1: yeah so I guess um I mean I've got kind of a bit of background in that area but I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't so maybe if you could just give us a bit of an overview of like what the adult parole board does and kind of what how you fit into that um,
2: So uh, the way parole works in Victoria is uh, a person or a prisoner who's eligible for parole. So there has to be a period of parole available to a prisoner within their sentence. Uh, They apply for parole uh, uh, generally a year beforehand or um, might might even, depending on the length of the sentence, um, they apply for parole. Uh, uh, an assessment is done, um, which I've no doubt, clear you would have done one or two of these sorts of assessments.
1: Sure
2: uh, have. I had to justify
1: Uh, it when I spoke to the board. (laughs) Very intimidating. Uh, Then
2: uh, that assessment would be read by the uh, Parole Board a couple of months before... the person was either eligible for parole or if that eligibility time had passed, we'd be looking at it as soon as possible. But it we worked on the premise that the person needed to be ready for parole. And this is one of the key outcomes of the uh, Callanan review that a person needed to have pretty much done their programs, have their accommodation ready to go, all that sort of key information um, uh, ready to go uh, for the uh, parole board to, to assess um, before they made their decision. Um, when it did, when the parole board did receive that information um, and it came with a, a lot of information around um, obviously the uh, parole suitability assessment report, which is quite a lengthy report, um, also any treatment reports, assessment reports, uh, intel reports, reports on uh, suitability of housing, um, so a, a wide range of information and then the board sat on that information. So. Um while I was there, we went over to an electronic file system so you could prepare um, a long time before or, you know, a couple of days before. Um, so when you sat to actually uh, make a decision with two other members of the board, uh, you could, you, everyone was across the information and you you could discuss the, the issue in many ways. And so the other people who might have been on a, a parole board at the time, um, there would always be a chair of the board and the, um, chair of a board would be either a uh, sitting or retired judge, a sitting or retired magistrate. And now, because of a change in the legislation, there could be a lawyer of 10 years standing. Uh, but almost all the lawyers that are, are present uh, you know, have more like 20, 30 years mm-hmm. um, as lawyers, often QCs, OSCs. So, um, yeah, really well established figures in the legal system. Uh, there's a full-time member that sits, which um, in that case, it was me or one of my colleagues um, at the moment who uh, happened to be all lawyers, but um, yeah, it uh, uh, was yeah, a full-time member. And we also had a community member and community members could uh, come from a wide range of different backgrounds. Um, we had uh, former police, uh, we had, uh, or retired police, sorry, uh, we had an Aboriginal elder, we had experts from um, uh, the health sector, uh, experts from the housing sector, so people from a wide variety of backgrounds, but all people who bought, um, informa- you know knowledge and um, uh, to the board. Uh, we also had people who'd. Uh, re- Represented victims, or were victim, had previously been victims of crime themselves. So, so the board was uh, quite a diverse group, but its strength, in my view, was its diversity. So, Mm -hmm. uh, certainly didn't always agree. You know, we'd have discussions about um, uh, whether to grant parole or not grant parole. Um, When a person was on parole, we also had to determine when issues started cropping up, whether the risk was such that we needed to cancel their parole and they'd be returned to prison. So,
1: yeah, um, and so was your role primarily around risk or kind of what was your kind of consulting in that?
2: No, my as a full-time member, my focus was as a decision maker. So uh, you, to an extent, left the psychologist behind. You weren't there as a psychologist, you were there yeah, as okay. a decision maker. Um, and, you know, you needed to focus on that very much. So even if I looked at a report and said, "Look, you know, the, you know, I don't think this report's very well written. This, you know, they've I, I misused a, a psychological tool on this. Uh, you know, I, I might observe that, but I wouldn't be trying to change necessarily the outcome of the decision or anything like that." So I was mm-hmm. quite careful about how you would use the knowledge that you do have um, beyond uh, being a decision maker, basically because the case manager or the The clinician on the ground they're the ones who are seeing the person um, face to face they're the ones who um, uh, are writing as they see fit the adult parole board has a lot more information that comes in than just what the clinician says
0: and so Mm. it can make
2: up its own mind on a range of information um, not just necessarily what um, the clinician said and I think that's something that uh, I was probably a bit unaware of when I was a clinician I used to be surprised by sometimes the decisions (laughs) of the adult at the time and wonder why they were made. Um, Great yeah, insight. Um, yeah, it was a, it was an interesting time, but I, I do strongly believe that the person on the ground, uh, you know, has has a, a pretty important role to play. They're seeing the person, and often you're not.
1: Um, so then, moving into your current role the Post sentence Authority, can you tell us a bit about the typical day there?
2: Yeah. So pr- prior to um. Uh, the murder of uh, Masa Bukadavik. Um, We part of the issue was that the um, detention and supervision order element of um, was was looked after by the adult parole board, and it's um <coughs> it's really quite a large area. Uh, and in, in in numerous submissions, um, the parole board was saying, look, this is something that probably needs to be looked at, and perhaps a, a separate board is required, <coughs> and ultimately after um, the um, terrible um, murder of um, Massa, uh by Sean Price in 2015, uh, the Harper Review um, was put in place and that was undertaken by retired Supreme Court judge, David Harper, and his recommendation was that an independent body for this very specific group of um, people who were considered um, uh, too risky uh, to be... Uh, allowed in the community without supervision after their sentence so and probably two elements that came out of the very specific circumstances with um, uh, that murder was that previously under the uh, detention supervision order um, elements of the uh, legislation was only sex offenders yep. whereas in 2018 under the serious violent offender uh, sorry serious, serious offenders act um, violent offenders were also included so you had serious violent offenders serious sex offenders and they're under scheduled 1 and Schedule 2 um, within the act if people would like to go and have a look at it. And this is one of the kind of few acts, I guess, where uh, the act actually says this is how the um, post-sentence authority needs to function, its membership, um, a lot of the, the rules around it, in addition to how it um, that, that functions with uh, different types of reports and um, uh, how the court can respond as well when they make their um, decisions. So uh, the way it works is essentially... Uh, Prior to the end of a sentence, um, an offender will be assessed um, when they've committed certain offences, which, as I said, are are noted in the Serious Offenders Act. And on the basis of that assessment, um, the Secretary of the Department of Justice and Community Safety can determine whether uh, she wants to apply for a supervision order or a detention order or not. And uh, for most supervision orders, the vast bulk of supervision orders, they go to the county court and a county court judge under a special list makes a decision on whether, first of all, an interim supervision order is uh, granted or uh, a full supervision order is granted. And similarly, an interim detention order or a full detention order is given. That then uh, goes over to the Post-Sentence Authority and and we, uh, to an extent, um, monitor that particular order with um, the Post-Sentence Branch. So the Post-Sentence Branch provide the services um, and uh, write a lot of the reports in association with Community Corrections, um, but we effectively um, uh, monitor the services that are provided. So it would be fair to say we're probably monitoring organisations as Mm -hmm. much as we are the individual offender. So it's a slightly different role in that regard as opposed to, um, say, parole, which is all about, it's really only community corrections who are generally providing services and Mm -hmm. everything is going through community corrections in terms of people being on parole. So, yeah, it's um, a different system and a really interesting one.
1: So I guess this sounds to me like part of the role of the branch is to kind of see how those orders are being managed as well, rather than just the effect yeah. of themselves and how they're kind of going on it.
2: So. Look, it, it, it's really important to have monitoring of it, not just for the fact that these are people who've been deemed um, very risky in terms of future offending, but also because uh, the sentence has finished, the criminal sentence has finished. And so uh, it's a pretty big thing to put somebody on a supervision order or a detention order. It needs to be very carefully monitored. Uh, and that's why whilst the post-sentence authority uh, monitor the order and in some cases we um, uh, may make some decisions around uh, different elements of the order such as approving accommodation or um, looking at different conditions it's the court that sets the conditions and most offenders will go back to court for a review at some point as well just so it's monitored very very closely not just in terms of risk but because um, people need to be transitioning off those orders, that's you could argue that would be one definition of success just as much as um, saying, well, no one offended while they are on an order. So it's, it's um, quite an important role in that regard.
1: Yeah. And so what was the response to that kind of legis- change in legislation, I guess, from having worked at Corrections at the time the parole changes came in? There was a lot of prisons <laughs> that were like, Oh, it's all Adrian Bailey's fault that I can't get parole. And (laughs) so, yeah, what? Uh, Yeah, uh, I think quite a
2: similar response, only a a much smaller cohort, Um, and uh, probably with parole. One thing we saw. Um, there was a sort of, uh, I think, uh, a belief that a lot of offenders would um, refuse parole because that was a key element of the Calendar Review, that mm-hmm. prisoners had to apply for parole as opposed to it automatically being considered. Yeah. Um, and the assumption was that that would lead to many offenders just saying, no, I don't want it um, and I'll just do my whole time. And certainly that, that occurred to an extent, um, but quite a small extent when we're talking sort of... Um, I think at the most, and this is, you know, quite a few years down the track now, but uh, I think it might have got to 5% at one point in terms of all offenders uh, who were eligible for parole. Um, offenders didn't get parole for a whole lot of other reasons, such mm-hmm. as poor behaviour or um, the most common one, though, is um, unsuitable accommodation, unfortunately. So it's it's by no means the people opting out. It was far more about the circumstances they were potentially going to be going to that um, led to the um, parole um, being denied in this particular case. So with post-sentence authority, though, they, you know, accommodation needs to be found. Um, and so for violent offenders, uh, there is no sort of residential facility for violent offenders, So they'll, they'll be in the community. Um, there is a, the capacity if a person's given what's called an intensive treatment supervision um, condition, they could go to a place called Rivergum. Mm-hmm. Which is a um, uh, specifically designed uh, residential unit uh, for people on intensive um, treatment and supervision orders. So, and that's a you know that's a, a entirely in-house um, treatment program there, which can go for different lengths of time, but probably around two years isn't unusual. So, um, you're looking at at reasonable lengths of time, and however the risk is is high for people, so it's taken seriously in that regard.
1: That's
2: similar sort of setup to Corolla Place. It is. So Corella Place is the is the uh, where people just with sexual offending um, will go. And Corella Place, yeah, it's a um, residential facility. Um, but you don't have the treatment and supervision condition on you at um, at that at Carolla Place. You're still expected to do treatment, but. You're not in part of a um, uh, holistic, um, quite uh, specific program that is built around a um, therapeutic community style model as well. So, uh, like it is at River Gum. And at River Gum, you've got violent offenders and sex offenders. So, oh, yeah. um, uh, quite a bit different. I would say, too, without. Um, you know, the security is quite a bit different at River Gum. It's, um, it's, it's a very, very pleasant um, place. However, um, it's very, very difficult to get out of as well, whereas Corella Place, it's it's effectively, um, you know, you can see through the fences. You've got electronic monitoring is the primary um, method that is used to ensure people don't um, abscond, So um, whereas, yeah, absconding from River Gum would be quite difficult. Mm-hmm.
1: And is there a law for psychologists at River Gum? Then, if it's
2: sort of yes, therapy. yes, there's a they have a clinical uh, uh, uh hands-on, very specific clinical team at Rivergun. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, all right. Well then kind of moving backwards a bit, I guess, to, to your PhD, that um in terms of your work the crime experiences kind of just in relation to your research. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Look, um, I, I <laughs> what, what happened with the white Colour crime side? I I was working a lot with violent offenders, so it actually started quite a few years beforehand, and I just happened to interview an offender once, um, uh, and he had, he was an accountant and had stolen uh, two million dollars, and. Um, uh, and I was, I was fascinated because at the time I was doing a lot of work, like I said, with violent wow. offenders and uh, a lot of violent offenders, um, in particular armed robbers, um, and you don't see too many armed robbers now. And I was sort of at the tail end of um, sort of armed robbers who would go after um, banks to an extent, but more so armed cars and things like that. So this is in the late 90s when I was working at Port Augusta Prison. Um, and you looked at the sort of amounts of money that these guys would get from a robbery, and then you contrast it with the sort of sentences they were getting. And, um, yeah, they were, yeah, it was enormous disparity. um mm. Because violence was involved, it was quite viewed quite differently. Uh, and so I was really fascinated. And to be really blunt, you could uh, speak to white-collar offenders and think, gosh, I'm not you know, my background isn't enormously different to their background. Um, I certainly wouldn't say you necessarily understood why they did it, but you could, you were, there was less need for you to really step out of your normal identity to understand why a person might commit a crime. It was um, a lot easier to understand in that regard. Um, But the other part to it that I particularly enjoyed with white-collar offenders is that, you know, they're, um, generally much more rational, generally have far less mental health problems. Very few um, uh, present with addictions and um, things like that. The am sorry, um, when I say addictions, certainly gambling is a massive problem for white-collar mm-hmm. offenders. But um, substance use, for example, which you see very, very dominant in the general uh, criminal population, you don't see nearly as much of in um, white-collar offenders. So, so a really interesting sort of group, a sort of subset of um, criminal behaviour. And this is a group, um, and when I present on it, I often you know talk about in terms of um, uh, yeah, this is a group of people who uh as opposed to general offenders, where I'm really really showing my age now, but the the movie The Commitments, um, there's a line in The Commitments that says um, uh, they had nothing and they were prepared to risk it all. Yeah. And unfortunately, for a lot of offenders, that's that's their life. That's um, that's how they you know often uh, have grown up in in extremely challenging circumstances, um, uh, a lot of poverty, um, you know, a lot of Difficult socioeconomic circumstances and uh, and crime sometimes, especially depending on where you're living, um, isn't that far from your door. Uh, and in some cases amongst family groups can even be rewarded. But white collar offences, um, and I'd often say, you know, again, when I present on Present on the same reason many offenders end up in um, prison is the same reason uh, you know when I'm speaking to white collar groups is the same reason a lot of people here are listening to me here who are perhaps accountants and lawyers and um, uh, fraud examiners and people like that. So you know you're encouraged to go to uni. You know you might by by peers and family and things like that just as easily you could be um, discouraged from getting a job or discouraged from um, uh, Uh, going to uni or or education, or it just might not be on the cards, it just might not be possible for you because the expectations are you need to look after siblings or um, go out and work straight away. So, yeah, the people's timelines are in some ways um, uh, certainly not predestined by any stretch, but uh, I think sometimes it's it's useful for people to understand that the reason they're in in jail or not in jail isn't that different for, uh, in terms of why they're a professional or not in jail. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: I, so, I mean, with the kind of white fellow guys, I mean, my immediate thought is that there's not really any kind of treatment targets. Like, they're not presenting with the typical criminogenic needs. So, what do you do with those guys?
2: Look, um, the vast bulk of them, when they when they get sentenced, will get a um, get parole. That was, you know, that's my experience. And pretty much because they have, uh, as you say, uh, score very low on criminogenic risk. The recidivism rate amongst white-collar offenders isn't particularly well known, so I'll certainly put that out there because a lot of businesses don't necessarily um, uh, make a criminal complaint against an offender. They might just um, recognise what's happened and sack the person um, and do it very quietly or even get the person to sign a non-disclosure agreement. Alternatively, if they do, there certainly are many cases where people um, do reoffend, but it's uh, nothing on the level that you see for property offenders uh, offenders or violent offenders. Um, uh, yeah so it's it's quite a different sort of cohort in that regard. And one argument certainly is that uh, the loss of um, uh, trust, from the community, so if you're an accountant, you steal money and then you go to jail. You uh, you won't be an accountant by the time you get out of jail. That um, mm-hmm. your registration will obviously, just like for psychologists, it would be looked at by the by the professional body, and word would get around very very quickly as well. So yeah, uh, yeah, it's very hard to get back in that position of trust again.
1: Mm-hmm. For sure. And so in terms of, you know, the not making a criminal complaint thing,
2: um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? The the, the law is different in different areas. So in Victoria, um, if you become aware of a crime um, as an organisation, you don't have to report it, but in New South Wales you do. Mm. And so it is a subtle but important difference. So organisations can choose whether to um, uh, report something or not. And, you know, there can be some reasons that, you know, a forensic psychologist, I freely admit when I've presented on this, I don't fully understand. But for a business person, they look at, uh, you know, the risk versus reward of informing people and, you know, uh, share prices can uh, be impacted by it. If you're looking at a merger, that can be impacted by it. Um, In some cases, a manager who wants to keep it under wraps might choose to um, hide the theft themselves of, of, the, of an, a staff member that they were managing because they might feel that it's too embarrassing for their own prospects to um, have more senior people become aware of it. So mm-hmm. there can be a multitude of reasons why uh, a, a theft isn't reported. Um, and one of the big ones too, and I'll, I'll use an example of a charity, say, um, who's you know heavily reliant on, on public trust um, to to donate money and then a theft occurs and people go, well, you know, they can't even look after their own money, you know, why yeah. would it give them my money? It can be absolutely detrimental. And when you look at fraud surveys of large organisations and small organisations, um, what's happened over time is the amounts of money involved are actually um, not necessarily that great in comparison to, say, the uh, company's uh, overall profit margin and things like that. However, um, reputational risk is by far far more feared um than uh, uh the amount of money lost in some cases but there are other ones like um, clive peters the electrical um uh store if you're again old enough to remember that <laughs> one uh you know which the, it uh, had over th- you know a thousand employees um uh, the chief accountant um stole 19 million dollars from there and the whole company went under so these things certainly have impacts, and you obviously have other, you know, very well-known um, international examples um, uh, where you know whole pension funds have been absolutely depleted by um, by white collar offenders, wiping out the um, often due to Ponzi schemes and things like that at that level. But so it's not necessarily a direct theft in the way we're talking embezzlement, but nonetheless, you know, people's entire financial future is wiped out. Yeah. thousands of people. So yeah.
1: Is that like the equivalent of our superannuation kind of thing? Is it is. Question? It
2: is. Sorry, yes, I should have been more specific, yeah.
1: <laughs> how do you balance being in a helping profession in a punitive environment?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And I, yeah, I've really, I have to say on the side, I've really enjoyed listening to, to so far, um, Bruce and Chris talk about their experiences as well because all three of us went through Edith Cowan Uni. So it's, mm. it's interesting hearing how people have, sort of found the profession as they've they've left the uni. But um look, uh my personal point of view is um it's the punitive environment um is where we should be uh in my experience. Um and when I talk to Because I think people underestimate how much good they can do and people, again, assume that it's always going to be directly working with the offender. But um, even in my time, I've seen enormous changes in prison culture amongst prison officers. There's been substantial change. Um, So, you know, it wasn't when I was working in South Australia, but um, it was only For eight or nine years before that, where they called prisoner by a number, not a name. So, Mm. you know, it was it's it's really changed enormously as case management has taken hold. So, if you're an effective clinician, um, you can do enormous. make enormous change I think um, just by being an effective professional and so certainly working with the offenders but also picking up people on language and and being able to um, engage prison officers as well and being able to talk um, you know uh, about uh, perhaps what's best for the offender and being able to happy to stand by your suggestions and um, be effective in report writing as well so I think there's, there's a lot of good that can be done. Um, I'd also say too, I don't know, uh, I didn't meet many offenders that had a great um, time growing up. Um, there's enormous amounts of trauma um, in the prison system um, and I think that's where... You know that, that's where psychologists should be. That's where um, you can do enormous good um, through both working on the offending behaviour, but also to working on um, the causes of that offending behaviour as well, such as trauma. Uh, and I guess at another level, I'd be saying too. Um, a, a colleague of mine once observed um, that you know when people say, "Oh, you know, why do why do we bother working with offenders and let's just lock them up, all that sort of stuff," you know, we exist in a in a society that thank goodness doesn't have capital punishment so these people are going to get out and they're going to live next door to somebody so you know when your kids hit a ball over the fence or something like that you and it's just so happens an offender lives there um you'd be hoping they had uh, received some good treatment in prison let's just put it like that so i think there's uh, ripple effects in the community as well that um, people don't fully appreciate at times. And so, um, yeah, we should be doing as much work as we can when people are inside and then as they transition into the community.
1: Yeah. And what have you noticed, I guess, what are some of the pros and cons of working in the prison versus in the community?
2: Oh, uh, look, certainly, you know, no day is the same. No no question about that. Um I think too in many ways uh, and again people will probably be surprised with this but at times I think you see that the best of people I've seen you know obviously I've seen you know terrible acts of aggression and malice in prison but I've also seen really extraordinary acts of kindness and courage in prison as well. Um, I've seen people uh, really uh, transcend their um, background um, and really do enormous good whether it's um, school kids coming in and they talk about their life um, I've seen them mentor younger prisoners um, I've been part of um, aboriginal uh, elder groups um, who again are, are, are helping to mentor young aboriginal kids who are going through the youth justice system so there's an, an enormous good that um, is being done through people's um, lived experience um, in the prison system so I and I, and I'm not sure how well sometimes that translates to that to the community i think sometimes there is a bit of a stumbling block when people get out and realize that it's um, um that yeah life's pretty hard in the community and um it's it's a bit different um but nonetheless i think there's enormous opportunities there for for mentoring sort of roles as well
1: yeah sounds very yeah. rewarding
2: so sorry i has hopped on a bit of a, yeah, <laughs> a soapbox there um in terms of the pros and cons look i, I find um Working in the community, really, you know, I've done it in private practice, as I was talking about before, um, also at Centrelink, and so there are a number of different sort of locations. One observation I'd make is that it can be, you, in some ways, lose lose a bit more sleep at night because there's no wet cell really that you can organise for someone to go to if they're feeling suicidal. Um, if you know somebody's on drugs, it's much difficult to uh, much more difficult to um, try to get them off drugs, yeah. um, and so it's people's um decision making can impact on them far far quicker and it, in terms of offending and again without being i don't mean to be um, coarse about it but it's a it's a very target rich environment so lots and lots of people have you know potential um risks around them whereas in prison again um, a lot more controlled you can um uh isolate somebody whether it's to a cell or a unit or or to part of a prison or something like that much more effectively um when people are having a bad time lots of people around them will notice whereas sometimes that's less obvious yeah. um i think to uh working in prisons so you, whilst you have that far more i guess control where you can uh make decisions um, it also hardens people, I think, and you need to be mindful of that as a psych. Um, and while you see the best of people at times, you obviously you can see the worst um, and, uh, your job in many ways is to give people the opportunity to take stock and uh, and that, that can be uh, quite challenging personally at times as well and so uh, and that can, there is a real sense of community in prison so you, you're very, very aware that nothing sort of just happens in isolation. It's a, quite a shallow ecosystem. But I think what a lot of people don't realise is that um, when a lot of offenders get out, they find the community absolutely terrifying. Even though they've built themselves up to go, I can't wait to get out and they know their end of their sentence or their parole date and things like that. But the number of offenders in the community that have said to me, you know, I, I feel like I've got I just got out of jail, tatted on my forehead. Mm. Um, I think everybody knows what I'm thinking. Um, everybody's sure that I just got out of jail. And things that perhaps, uh, though it's not so bad now, you know, if you've got you know, lots and lots of tats in very obvious places that in jail no-one bats an eyelid. But, um, you know, in the community people take notice of that sort of stuff and store detectives might be following you around or things like that. So yeah, um, people are judgments. quite different. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's quite challenging for people and they're well aware that jail rules don't apply. It's, there's a lot more nuanced rules that go on in the community that that uh, in jail, uh, you know, it's, it's relatively black and white. So, yeah.
1: Yes, yeah, certainly I've worked with a lot of guys that prefer to be in jail, which to me is kind of <laughs> quite a big compliment, but I guess if, you know, that's what you're comfortable with and you know what to expect there, there is the routine and everything. And yeah. Yeah, look, I think,
2: I think sometimes we underestimate loneliness
1: mm-hmm. um,
2: amongst offenders, especially if you know a lot of... Um, um, conditions of parole or post-sentence or things like that may be to not have contact with other offenders. And the trouble is if you grew up with other offenders and you've spent the last 10 years with other offenders, yeah, it's it's pretty lonely. And you might be in a one-bedroom, you know, building or something like that or a room Um and not allowed to see anybody. It's It can be, you know, quite lonely as opposed to prison where you can, if you're a remotely friendly person, you'll probably be able to go and catch up with someone for a cup of tea without any trouble at all. You can go train with people. Your life can be, you know, pretty organised in that sense. So, yeah, it's quite uh, challenging, I think, when guys get out. And that's aside from if you left debts in the community or you have a reputation that um, of, you know, being, you know, either a tough guy or um or not and how you'll deal with that when you get out as well so and people have, for example have been in biking clubs who you know now uh who have decided they're going to get out of that club you know they face a, a really challenging time as well so yeah very difficult and that's leaving aside relationships that you know might function quite effectively on the prison phone system or on weekend visits but all of a sudden some of those um uh, key pillars of a relationship are going to be tested when it's face to so, face. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, in your view, what would you say was your most challenging moment as a forensic psychologist?
2: Um, I probably uh, look. Uh, I've probably had a couple. One, one that's kind of it's, you know, it's a philosophical one, I guess, as much as anything. I was, I was running a violence program, um, at Loddon Prison, and uh, and we were having a a session that day that 9-11 occurred and I think we were about to start talking about the idea of revenge and how revenge is not a good idea and then George W Bush got up and said we're going to hunt down these um, terrorists and uh, they'll, they'll know that America is after them. So it was interesting having the discussion around that. Um, but probably one of the more uh, challenging ones, I think, was um, I was working with a, a guy who, who had a very violent history and Whilst in in the discussion, we we'd been working on some anger management and some um, strategies on on controlling uh, some emotional regulation strategies, and he um, said in a in an offhand way, and I don't think he fully realised he'd said it that, um, oh, you know I you know I wanted to go and uh, you know, I was really angry with this guy, and I was thinking of going back to my cell and grabbing the shiv and then going and stabbing this guy, and I went okay, right, yep, and we get I finished the session. And then I, you know, was going to have to obviously inform the uh, prison's operations manager that um, this person had a shiv in their cell um, and that's, you know, I, that's something that you that I've done in different ways over the years, but in normally you can manage it in, a, in different ways as well. Um, this time it was going to be very, very obvious where the information came from because we had to act on it immediately. Uh, and so, and at the time I was working in quite a small prison Uh, And I was also running a violence program as well. This particular individual wasn't in that program. Um, But nonetheless, yeah, well, nonetheless, um, you know, I was going to have to be and I was running it by myself and uh, I was going to be... uh fronting up the next session when and in jail nothing moves faster than a rumor um Absolutely. Uh, and so you know it's going to be whether intentional or you know whether anybody said it or didn't say it It was going to be well understood where the information came from so um that was going to be viewed as a as a breach of trust to an extent even though prisoners know what side you're on and that you're mm-hmm. always going to disclose and you you have to, and that you would anyway, from a uh, moral and legal perspective. But nonetheless, um, it's going to—it it certainly made the uh, a couple of sessions of the violence program some interesting sessions. So yeah.
1: And how about your most rewarding moment?
2: Oh, look, I always really, really enjoyed um, group work. Um, the thing with, I think, when you're working in the forensic field, you don't see your successes by definition. They um, don't come back to the system. And when I, when I say forensic system, I mean obviously the, um, the uh, criminal justice system. Uh, so, and even. Um, Uh, when when, you know hoping people get through their sentence or get through their parole really as a psychologist you're really wanting them to set themselves up to be productive members of the community to be able to um, enjoy the, the freedoms that people in the community have, um, without having to look over their shoulder all the time for either other offenders or police. And uh, and so you you want to you want people to have the skills that go beyond the sentence. But overall, group work was probably my most enjoyable thing. And and as I got. Um, better at it um, and receive some really good supervision really good training uh that that ability to learn to shut up basically and <laughs> um, uh, and truly facilitate a, a group rather than try to lead a group and um, and watching different offenders within the group sort of stand up and um, and uh be able to challenge each other and it's far more effective you know offenders challenging each other than you doing the challenging um, and that's when that's done there's, you just have some really extraordinary moments that uh, that I can't really describe now, but they just were extraordinary moments where things just seemed to come together and you really saw um, some pretty uh, hardened beliefs um, not get shattered necessarily but get, uh, you know, the foundations get tested and um, and that's really a, an extraordinary moment for, for people who've lived their lives by those foundational um, beliefs. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, I haven't done any forensic-based groups, but I've done some other clinical ones. And certainly that shift from, you know, the first kind of intro session to the end and how they kind of start yeah. to challenge each other. stuff so it's fantastic to see. So I'd just love to get some more experience in a um, yeah, forensic yeah. setting. Be, yeah. I think
2: it's really good nowadays because when I, when I did my Masters, you know, we only did a very small amount of group work and it was – whereas now it's just so much a standard part of um, uh, offender treatment for a range of reasons. But, um, uh, yeah, I, I think it's a, a really positive thing and a, and a part of, that you can really um, enjoy and get a lot out of um, both personally and professionally.
1: What do you recommend for people starting out in this field to make sure that they prioritise self-care?
2: Oh, sure, yep. Um Look, I think first of all, understanding that th- this sort of work impacts everybody, and um, it's one of those times. If you if you uh, think it doesn't, then you um, you're kidding yourself. Oh, it's right. an inherent byproduct of it, um, and that's okay. That's once you understand that, you can you can work with it. Um, so personally, I, I think uh, psychologists tend to be in their head a lot um it's one of the nature of the work um so doing some sort of physical exercise um yoga pilates um personally i really like martial arts that's sort of one i i enjoy but um people need a, a, a physical outlet as well and um and i guess i'd be thinking that even um to an extent from the body trauma sort of literature of really understanding us as um you know we've got to really understand things holistically in my opinion um the other one i notice is um clothes so really having a um I used to see it as changing my uniform. So mm-hmm. the moment I'd get home, I'd change clothes, and that was the start and the end of the the day, very much. And you yeah. were, you know, you you switched out identities a little bit, um, and part of that professional way. identity too. So is is language as well. So uh, obviously in prison, there's a lot of swearing and things like that, which you don't certainly that necessarily um, have to take part in. But there, there is an element of. Um, uh, a shift in language from a workplace to being at home and I think you need to identify that in yourself as well that uh, idea of um, personal identity versus professional identity and language is a really effective way to do that um, as well. A um, couple of other ones too that off the top of my head would be um, when you notice yourself mirroring some of the behaviours you're trying to treat and again people think that they are the one imparting information when sometimes they're also, you know, communication's a two-way thing. And I really noticed it where, um, you know, after finishing a session, um, I sort of walked out of the prison and I really didn't give myself enough time and, you know, a person sort of almost hit uh, the car I was in. My wife was driving and, um, um, you know, and I was almost yelling at the guy or just, you know, and using very similar language to what the offender who just I've been working with mm-hmm. was using. So it was colourful to say the least. <laughs> um, and, you know, yeah, it's one of those times where you realise that, yeah, you you pick up very, very similar sort of um, uh, behaviours you need to monitor them very, very carefully and you need to have others around you, well, I, I think also you can say, oh, that's, you know, you didn't used to do that before and really being able to notice yeah. shifts in behaviours um, as well. Um, probably the other one too is, uh, where you avoid discussing certain things in supervision. Mm -hmm. Um, and that means you should be discussing them in supervision. I think that's one of those, um, you know, if you're choosing to not do something and having that meta thinking about observing what you're not doing as much as what you are doing. And probably the last one I think is, um, a degree of professional arrogance, and what I mean by that is when you start to believe that you're the only person who could possibly do this sort of work, or the sort this sort of work with this particular person, then mm. you really need to discuss that in supervision. Because in my experience, people need different sorts of clinicians at different times in their treatment. There's there's a time and a place for different. Um, therapeutic styles different therapeutic modes um and one size does definitely not fit all so I, I think people who think that you know if i'm going on holidays no one else should work with this particular offender especially if, you know you're going for a long time um they have to wait until i get back because i'm the only one who could possibly do this work I, that always used to worry me so yeah yeah.
1: yeah yeah, yeah. And um, looking back on your career, what knowing what you know now, is there anything you'd do differently in terms of your education or anything
2: else? Uh, look, I probably well, I wish I'd done more, uh, probably in a hospital. I think um, the the medical model is so different to um, the way sort of prisons operate and to an extent private practices operate uh, that. You know that would have been good to have, um, not necessarily for a long time, but just to have a, an understanding of it. Whether it was a pl- even via placement, perhaps would have been good. That's um, one thought I had. Just, just how much more hierarchical it is and um, a real focus on a diagnosis perhaps as opposed to, um, you know, focusing on very specific behaviours such as violence or sexual offending or things like that. Uh, and probably I say more corporate work, but um, it's more just to understand the mindset in that field, um, mainly because as you Move through the system and get into move into leadership positions. You realise that clinical language does it, it, it requires a different sort of mindset and language, um, and that can take a while to learn. To be honest, so that idea of a cost benefit delivery model is a bit different sometimes to the way we might view things clinically, which often are. The outcomes are a bit different, or far more principle-based, and I, mm-hmm. I think that can be something that um, sometimes uh, I think I would have benefited from understanding that around leadership and um, uh, and how you put forward a, an argument for um, perhaps more resources or something like that. Yeah,
1: would that kind of fall more into org
2: Um uh, Possibly, but the the, the nature of um, working in Uh, prisons is that you're going to hit a point where you either, if you, you know, choose to, looking at your, say, your enumeration of either going to management or going to full-time private practice, you're going to hit a ceiling as a clinician. Uh, And, you know, people decide which way they'll go in a lot of cases. Um, And uh, if you do choose to uh, climb the ladder further, you you need to understand that the game shifts a little bit, that it's not so much about... um, Uh, your clinical skills that it's going to be about your leadership skills ability to write um, uh, effective business cases um, and really be able to explain what is the outcome we're trying to get here not the assumption that we often have in clinical work you know we just want him you know we need him to reduce his risk of violence or something like that we need to understand what that means more broadly um if and it wouldn't would virtually never be a single case design it would always be a uh, explaining why another group needs to be run or explaining why you need a new clinician another clinician or something like that mm-hmm. so just a different way of thinking about things that sometimes is less apparent um i think to clinicians and it was something professor ogloff said to me when i took my first leadership position he said david it's really important that the psychs get into leadership positions because you do see it and i you know witnessed it at different times where clinical teams are um uh not so much being getting managed but their priorities are going to be dictated not necessarily by other clinicians and so you need a seat at the table to to be if you want to have a say you need a seat at the table of who's making those sort of decisions and that requires you to to move up the ladder
1: yeah. Do you have any advice? And, and, and
2: understand that shift in language.
1: Sorry. Um Do you have any advice for people that are a bit more interested in sort of the manager pathway compared to clinicians? or uh, I Oh, I,
2: I think there's... A, it evolves over your career, so um, you know at the start you should be building your clinical toolbox. Um, you know, I'd be suggesting doing your EMDR training, doing schema training. Um, um, probably increasingly, I'd be suggesting in you know um, trauma informed training. Uh, so there's lots of important work that that sort of is um, a key element, or should be a key element in um, your treatment. Process in forensic psychology, as and that's on top of getting all your risk assessment tools. Mm -hmm. Um, So you're very, very proficient at them. Um, And then over time, and so once your clinical toolbox is built up and you've built up a a wide range of clinical experiences, you might decide to perhaps do some training and supervision. And then after that, perhaps look at some uh, training in um, management. So understanding that supervision, clinical supervision is different to management. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes you know clinicians aren't fully aware that they need to change their PD if they want to um, perhaps move in different er areas into uh, more leadership roles. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a a wide range of um, areas that people can look at like that. And similarly with private practice, people need, if they're going to go down that road, you know, getting some training in in setting up an effective private practice is really important. It's not quite as simple as it was, say, 20, 25 years ago where you kind of Hung your, you know, got an ABN and put your name out there. You really need to have very, very good consent forms now that are vetted, um, you know, by lawyers. You need to really be quite tight in your clinical ta- uh, note taking. Um, got to have the right insurance. Um, got to have the right rooms. Um, it's it's a really important endeavor well, if you it. choose to go down that road. What hmm.
1: cool to think about. <laughs> <laughs> um i guess to finish off then um is there any kind of advice that you got starting out that you'd like to pass on or do you have any other advice
2: oh look probably there's a couple of things i'd say one of the more one of the most useful things I was taught, and it was in a long time ago, in 1998, when I was doing a placement at the sex offender program, and uh, Astrid Bergden was running it at the time, um, and uh, in supervision, she commented to me that uh, you've got to think in terms of three levels of um, uh, interventional treatment, and so, uh, you know, face-to-face level, a... Um, uh either a group level or to an extent even a, a prison level you might even look at it at and then more broadly uh the community and or the entire organization um, or whether it's community corrections or prisons or whatever and um and i found that incredibly useful uh over time to understand that intervention can occur at a range of different levels mm. which is probably one reason why i like, chose to go onto the adult parole board and the post-sentence authority of understanding that how, how you choose to influence and impact on a system can take many different forms. Um, probably the other thing I'd say is um, really become, uh, you, you've got to be able to be non-judgmental. You you know, if you're doing this work for any length of time, you're going to come across an offence an type or an offender who just hits all your buttons Mm -hmm. and you're going to need to be able to just in terms of sheer professionalism um, uh, to do this sort of work you need to be as much as you can um, be non-judgmental now obviously in the back of your mind you might be thinking certain things can't let that get in the way and you certainly should never be um, saying that or, or giving that impression to the offender because um, that was probably the, the best compliment I, I got from offenders was around, oh, you, we don't feel judged by you. So um, it's, a, it's a little thing, but um, if you do give that impression that you're judging somebody, whether it's during an assessment or treatment, um, people will just stop the process um, yeah. or start to um, omit or um, lie or a whole range of different things like that and probably the last thing i and i anyone who's been supervised me by me who has heard me harp on about this for a long time is um you've got to travel you, you really need to um get outside of your comfort zone um you've got to be able to be self-reliant um and traveling is a really effective way of doing that in different cultures and experiencing places where you don't know the language or have don't know the money um that that's a, a really important uh, i think life skill to have and reading very broadly so i uh, it worries me when people, you know, just read psych books. I, I don't think that's particularly healthy. I think it's obviously important to to know your craft but it's even more important to have breadth as a human being um, and that will help you engage with people um, sure. far more effectively than being an expert in a very, very narrow band um, potentially. So um, understanding, you know, uh, cultural trends, um, being able to, yeah, uh, having a, a real breadth of reading, um, I think it's really, really important. So, yeah.
1: Some very useful tips there. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, so that's it for us, I guess. Um, so thanks again, Damon, for joining us twice. Um, no trouble at all.
0: And that concludes episode four of Forensic Minds. A huge thank you to Dr. David Kerno for his time and to Claire Bryce for that interview as well. Join us next time for episode five of Forensic Minds where we'll be speaking to Dr. Caroline Hare about her experience as a forensic psychologist both within Australia and abroad. See you then.